looking at 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. 1 Peter, chapter 2, 4 to 12. Or if you can't find it, scream behind me. Here the passage says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe... The stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to bring this message. Father, thank you for this uh, challenging title in this challenging series, really. Um, and pray for Clive and all that you've been prepping in his heart over this week about this particular title and message and this passage in, from Peter. Uh, use him to speak to us for your glory. Amen. Thank you, Ross. We're in a series, for those of you uh, who are with us today for the first time, on Christian atheism. Seems an unusual title for a, a message of Christian sermons, doesn't it? But it's got the, the uh, subtitle, What's That? Well, Christian atheism, according to Craig Grishel, who is a pastor of a very, very large t- church in the States and a very gifted pastor, he's also a New York Times best-selling author, and he wrote a book called Christian Atheism, and the subtitle was Saying That You Believe in God, But Living As If You Don't. Saying That You Believe in God, But Living As If You Don't. And we come to the fifth and final message on this series. So far, we've looked at believing in God, but trusting more in money. We looked in week two at believing in God, but in it for the easy life. In week three, we looked at the fact that you can believe in God, but not necessarily really believe in prayer. That you can, week four, believe in God, but not really know him. And this week, we come to believing in God, but not in his church. If I had a a, a five pound note for every time someone had said to me, I don't need to go to church to believe in God, Or even, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, I'd be a very wealthy man. Anyone else ever heard that? Okay, there's a a mother who was desperate to get to church on time and uh, her son wasn't getting out of bed. So uh, you may have heard this story. She went upstairs and said, look, you've got to get out of bed and go to church. He said, I'm not going, I'm not going. She said, you've got to get out of bed, son, and go to church. He said, give me two good reasons why I should get out of bed and go to church. She said, no, you give me two reasons why you're not going to church. He said, okay, I will. The people all hate me, 
And I don't like the people. Now you give me your two reasons, Mum, why I should go to church. He said, okay, firstly, you're the pastor, you're 29 years old, and secondly, you're preaching today. (laughs) So sometimes, believe it or not, people don't necessarily want to go to church, despite the fact that wonderful things can happen when you go to church. Do you know, I know some people, friends even, who've even gone to church and found the love of their life. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So in this church, there's someone who met someone and fell in love with that other someone who met and fell in love, and I'm delighted to tell you that Ross and Alice have announced their engagement. Why don't you give them a round of applause? So there you go. Wonderful things can happen at church, but the most important thing about church is that Jesus is there. Okay? So as we come to this final message in the series, I want to start with the question, really. It's the blindingly obvious question. It's, what is church? What is church? We're in this magnificent old building, Mutley Baptist Church. People have been worshipping in this building for 150 years as of next year, 2019. But is church the building or is it the people? Because some of you remember the last time this church had about 700 people in it, there were people queuing down the side of the church, down there, you can see the picture, when we had a Kingdom Come Prayer initiative, and this place was groaning with 700 people. I'm delighted to tell you that my friend Ollie Ryder, who's a vicar of uh, St. Matt's just up the hill there, he has with other pastors, and uh, he knows I'm stepping aside, so it'll be up to Ross and the elders and you as membership, what you do about this, But he's uh, got with others a vision for taking what happened here, the Kingdom Come Prayer Initiative, after the first year at St. Matt's with 200 plus, and then nearly 700 here. He wants to take it to the Plymouth Pavilions for Friday the 7th of June next year. Wouldn't that be exciting? He wants to see that place filled with people praying and worshipping God. And then on the 8th and the 9th, two things will happen. The vision is pray, serve, invite Pray, serve, invite. And it's called Love Southwest. Ollie is a man with a big heart and a big vision. He wants to see the Southwest impacted. So do I. So the idea is that pray on the 7th, serve all over the city and the area on the 8th, on the Saturday, and then invite people to church on the Sunday, the 9th. And I hope there'll be queues bigger than that queue in that picture there. I would love to be present, as you know, I won't. I've been called by God up to Yorkshire to serve there. But I pray that this will be something that will massively impact. Because God loves his church, and God's plan, as you'll see and hear, is his church. And yet we have to say that Jesus clearly spoke more about the kingdom of God than he ever spoke about the church. Jesus did speak about the church. But he spoke regularly and passionately and used parables to speak about the kingdom of God. And we're going to ask another question. How does God describe his church? How does God describe his church? We're going to go to the Bible to look at that one. But first of all, let's, before we define church and see what God says about his church, let's define kingdom. Kingdom, the best definition I know, and one that works for all of us, is kingdom is about the rule and reign of a king. So the kingdom of God is about the rule and reign of God in your life and my life, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian. 
And more specifically, if you're a Christian, it's about the rule and reign of King Jesus in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your family, in your home, and in your church. The rule and reign of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to our core text, but it's going to be a thematic approach today with lots of Scripture. So pin your ears back and hold on to your seats and get your Bible open. And the first thing that I want to say is in Ephesians chapter 1, the great Apostle Paul, who'd been a persecutor of the church, makes it clear that Jesus is the head of the church and that the church is vitally important. Ephesians 1 verses 22 to 23. Paul says, God placed all things under his, that's Jesus' feet. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's all about Jesus. As Ross said when he was leading us in worship, it's all about Jesus. The church and the kingdom are all about Jesus. Jesus is the king and the church is one place where, please God, he rules and reigns as head of the church because we've just read that God placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be head for everything in the church. So what does the Bible say? How does the Bible describe the church? Well, let me give you, it's not an exclusive list, it's not an exhaustive list, There'll be other expressions, but here are six things. First, the church of Jesus Christ is a called-out community. Second, it's a spiritual temple. Third, it's the family of God. Fourth, it's the flock of God. The people in the flock are the sheep, and Jesus is a good shepherd. Fifthly, it's the body of Christ. We read in that wonderful uh, reading from 1 Peter about... uh, a spiritual house being built of living stones. The people of the church, not this magnificent building, you, the people I'm looking at, the body of Christ, and also and deeply and profoundly and mystically and mysteriously, the church is described as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So we're going to go through these things consecutively. What about a called out community? Well, the word in the Greek in the New Testament is ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesial or ecclesiological. It's to do with church. Ecclesiastical garments to do with what people wear in church, if they wear particular robes in church. So ecclesia is a word Jesus uses in Matthew 16 to talk about his called out community, because that's what it means. There's a Hebrew word, kahal, which means the same thing, the called out community. Let's go to Matthew 16 and look at what Jesus himself says about his church. I'll give you a bit of background as you turn to Matthew 16, and we're going to read just verses 16 to 19. But the background is this. People are are, are saying all kinds of things about Jesus, and the disciples come to Jesus and gather around him, and he asks them a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Because he gives himself the title, the Son of Man. So he says to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they answer him. They say, some say that you're John the Baptist. Obviously, he'd come back to life because he'd been beheaded by Herod. Some say that you're Elijah, the prophet, come back to life. And still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. In other words, Jesus was so special. He was one of the great patriarchs or leaders of the church, resurrected. That's what some people were saying. And then Jesus looks at them undoubtedly and says to them directly, what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter, his closest friend amongst those disciples, arguably, Simon Peter answers in this way, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that moment, this is what Jesus has been waiting for. Someone gets it, who he is. He's the Christ, which in the Hebrew is Messiah. In English, he's the anointed one. He's the one God promised. He's the very Son of God. The Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter. The word for that is Cephas. It means rock. You are Peter, and on this rock, upon you in one sense, I will build my ecclesia. I'll build my church. I'll build my called-out community. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's this idea of the rule and reign of Christ again there, you see. The loosing or the binding, the freeing or the locking up. This sense of the rule and reign, the authority of Jesus Christ in his church. And there's been a big debate over church history about about whether Peter was the rock on which the church was built. The Catholic church would say he was the first pope. The big fisherman, Peter, the key disciple, was named, and he was a rock. Protestants have often said, no, it's what he said, that you are the Christ. The Christ is the rock. Christ is the cornerstone. That's what Jesus was getting at. You've recognized who I am, and on this confession, I will build my church. Still with me? Good. Profound stuff. When we now go to our key text, we can see all of that and much more as we scan just down a few verses of 1 Peter chapter 2, from verse 4 down to verse uh, 12. You see, Peter, the big fisherman, is now saying to Christians through this first letter of the two letters in the New Testament, he's saying this, he's saying, as you come to him, the living stone, this is Jesus, you come to the living stone, he's a true rock, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. He's saying, hey, we've done away with the priesthood. You are the priesthood now. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the rock. You're being built like living stones, like the image behind me on the screen, into a spiritual house. He makes it clear from quoting Old Testament scriptures that The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. We sing that in a a modern song. Jesus is the capstone at the head of the church, but he's a foundational cornerstone. You'll see a cornerstone out there, a foundation stone with the date it was laid on it of this church. But Jesus is the capstone, he's a cornerstone, and many people have rejected him. But Peter goes on to say, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God with a purpose that you may declare the praises of him, Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He's the light of the world. Once you are now not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you haven't received mercy, but now you have. And then he says this, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, you're the body of Christ. You're a royal priesthood. You're to make God known to this world. And God has called you out. You are a called out community. So live like it. Let others know there's a God by the way you live. Resist sin. Don't live the way the world lives. A called out community. But we're also beginning to get the language of a spiritual temple. And let's go back to Paul from Peter for just a moment because Paul in writing to Christians in a place called Corinth, a church that was awash with all kind of bad stuff that shouldn't have been going on, and he challenges them and he directs them, but he does not deny that they are that spiritual building, they are that spiritual temple. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? So we could say, let's leave here now like we did last Sunday night. We left the building. We prayer walked Mutley and the area. There was a, a, a wonderful, lovely family, a large family from above Bar Church, great church in Southampton. They were on holiday. They came here. They'd never heard of what we were going to do, prayer walking. They went, they came back. They absolutely loved it. They went as a family and they prayer walked. They'd never done it before, never even heard the expression prayer walking. They go to a great Bible teaching church. We left the building because, you see, the building is not the church. I love this old building. It serves us so well. And my friend Ollie Ryder, when Ross and I showed him round, he was almost salivating at the potential of the building. It's a great tool. It's a wonderful place to worship. He said he'd take the pews out straight away, of course. That's Ollie. But the point is, I'm looking at the church now. You men and women, and young people, and even babies in arms. You're the church. You see, this called-out community is a spiritual temple. Let's look at what Paul says back in Ephesians again, this great epistle that is sometimes called the epistle to or about the church. In Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, he absolutely ties up with what Peter's saying and vice versa. Listen to it, Ephesians 2 from verse 19. Consequently, says Paul to Christians in Ephesus, in Turkey as we now know it, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, here it is, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, here it is, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Wow. Now if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you, in your heart, in your life. Literally lives within you. The very presence of God, the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. But when we gather together, we are this spiritual temple. We're living stones being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who held the early church to the truth of Christ's teaching. And pastors are to do that now. With Christ Jesus as himself as a chief cornerstone and in him the whole building is built to become a holy temple, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wow. But we're not just a spiritual temple, we're a family. We're supposed to be a family, the family of God. Sticking in Ephesians, Paul makes that clear as he prays for the family of God in Ephesus in one of the most beautiful prayers in the New Testament. The apostle in Ephesians 3, 
verses 14 to 15, and then I'll go to verses 20 to 21 at the end of the prayer, says some things that helps us to understand we are the family of God, just as those Christians in Ephesus were all those hundreds of years ago. Let let me read it for you. Paul's praying for the Ephesians, and he says, for this reason, chapter 3, 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family... Do you know an alternative translation of the Greek? The whole of fatherhood. The whole of fatherhood gets its name from God. I don't know if you had a good father, but I know God's a good, good father. And I know that he loves you. And all good fathering comes from the father heart of God. And Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the father from whom his whole family or all fatherhood in heaven on earth derives its name. And he goes on to pray that God will open their eyes with glorious riches to understand his love more deeply. And in verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians 3, he closes the prayer in this way. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory, how in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, the church is important to God. It's his called out community. It's a spiritual temple. It's the family. And if you want an insight elsewhere from the great apostle Paul into how we're to treat each other, listen to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul writes this to Christians in Galatea. Therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. The family of believers, the church, do good especially to them. You know, it's great. I was talking to Wendy earlier that she got in at quarter to four a couple of weeks ago from being a street pastor. I said, how's it going? She said, I love it. I love being a street pastor. It's great that people from this church go out and they do soup run. It's great that people get fed through the recovery ministry. It's wonderful that there's youth church downstairs this morning and they've just come back excited from a magnificent camp where 45 of them were. It's wonderful that the children are meeting and the children are inspired and it's wonderful that Beth's wearing her cape today because she's going to be supernova in the uh, superhero for the new children's ministry. It's great that the family's ministry sees hundreds of people through it every week. It's great that you in your frontline life are making a difference for God. The church is quite remarkable, quite wonderful, the family of God, but sometimes it's easier to love the people on the soup run or the people in recovery or the people you meet as a street pastor or etc., 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 than it is to, to love the person sitting right next to you, your brother or your sister. But that's what Paul says. Do good. First of all, essentially to those who are in the family of God, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Even when it's hard, we'll come back to that. See, this family of God is also the flock of God. Now, Ross and I, with others here, a number of others here, are appointed under God. Jesus is the head of the church. But you, the members of this church, if you're a member of this church, appointed and set aside men and women to be elders within this church. And if we go back to Peter's first letter, 1 Peter, but we go a little bit further on from chapter 2 to chapter 5, Peter, the big fisherman, the rock, 
He speaks to the elders as a fellow elder, and it's wonderful. And he speaks to them about the flock of God and how elders should lead the flock of God. Let me read it to you, 1 Peter chapter 5 and the first four verses. To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, this rock, this great apostle, the big fisherman. In humility he just says, I'm an elder too, that's all I am. I'm an elder. That's all I am. When I stand up and say, hi, my name is Clive, I say then, I'm one of the pastors of this church. I don't say, I'm the senior pastor. I'm one of the elders. I'm one of the pastors of this church. And the language here for pastors, for elders, for bishops, is absolutely interchangeable. Listen to it. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed... Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers. They have a responsibility and authority. Episcopate is the word. Bishops, it means you have an authority to oversee, to make sure that right doctrine is taught. As well as shepherding and pastoring and caring and being wise elders that rule the business of the church under the head Jesus, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Here it is, the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the one who said, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Please pray for your elders, all of them. Please encourage them. Please thank them. Please honour them. They are all, every single man and woman, doing their best to try and follow what they believe about God. And they will continue to do that. They have that responsibility. Ross and I have that responsibility to care for, to teach, to feed, to look after, and to protect the flock of God. And perhaps the most common expression for the church is the body of Christ. Back in Ephesians, there's a lot of scripture from Ephesians here today. It's the first epistle that I taught on in this church when I was called. It was the first epistle I taught on when I was called to Andover. It was the first epistle I taught on when I was called to um, Christchurch Baptist Church in Christchurch. Why? Because it's the epistle to the church. I wanted to be clear about what I believe about the church, and I do now. The body of Christ is described in a beautiful way by Paul in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read verses 3 to 6, but particularly listen out for verse 4. I'll repeat it. Paul says this. I read these scriptures many times recently at elders and members meetings. Verse 3 of Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. That is seven times that the word one is used. He's saying over and over, one, 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 one. He's saying, not at any expense, not at any cost, but whatever you do, work for the unity of the church. Fight for the unity of the church, but don't fight Pray for the unity of the church. 
defend and protect the unity of the church. The church of the redeemed who are baptized into Christ and into the church. Let me just give you that as an extra scripture. You see, the the God, who is our heavenly Father, only sees one church from heaven. He doesn't see St. Matt's and PCC and Methodist Central Hall and Mutley Baptist Church and all the other churches. He does see them, of course, but when he looks down from heaven, he sees all the people in Plymouth and all the people in the world who belong to him through his son Jesus, who have been baptized into the body of the church through faith in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit filling the life of someone who accepts Jesus as their saviour. Let me read this for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 13. Paul's talking about the church as a body with many parts. And he says, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. Though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Guess what I'm delighted and hoping and praying to be doing on my last service here, September 23rd in the evening. I'll preach at all three services that day. Guess what I'm hoping and longing and believing and trusting God that I'll be doing? I will be baptizing. I'll be baptizing people into the body of the church, into a relationship with God the Father through the Son, because I know, and I won't baptize them unless I know that this is true, and only God knows the heart of a man or woman, but I'll do my best to make sure they are born again of the Spirit. Because what we've just read is you are baptized with or in or through one Spirit into the church. You still with me? I'm not sure. You're thinking hard. You see, the body of Christ has Jesus of the head as the head, but it's all those who belong to God that God sees from heaven. And the final, and the final part, this is the final part of the deeper teaching before we get on to our response, is that the Bible speaks of the church of God as the bride of Christ. And in Ephesians again, chapter 5 This is an analogy that is used by the Apostle Paul. It's like marriage, okay? So let me just read Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 to you. Paul is speaking to wives and husbands and families, but he, he makes a profound and mysterious statement here. In verse 25 of Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Jesus is the bridegroom who's coming back for his bride, the church. Amen? So what Jesus wants from his elders is that they will teach and preach and hold people through oversight to these scriptures, God's love letter, to his bride, the church. Are you with me? He wants to purify his church. He wants to wash his church. He wants his church to think and act and live the way that this love letter tells them to think and act and live. Amen? The bride of Christ. How many of you in here have read any Charles Dickens? Yeah? 
How many of you in here have read Great Expectations about that young boy called Pip? How many of you in here remember a character in Great Expectations called not Mrs. but Miss Havisham? Yeah? Miss Havisham. Quite an amazing character. Pip meets her and in one sense she's kind of kind to him, but in another sense it's all a bit weird because Miss Havisham's house is a living testimony to the fact that she had her heart smashed into a million pieces. See, she was stood up at the altar at what should have been one of the happiest days of her life, at her wedding. Stood up. Absolutely bereft. The groom did not appear. The wedding banquet in her magnificent home was all laid, and when Pip met her, it was still laid. She was still wearing what would have been a beautiful bridal gown. She's now an old woman. She'd never taken it off. No doubt there was a smell. There was rotten food. There was dust. There was cobwebs everywhere. It was a testimony to the absolute heartbreak of a woman. And I remember saying to a tutor at Bible college while I was learning theology and scripture, Molens College, a guy who'd been a missionary in Brazil, just like Stan and Mo, who served for decades in Brazil, given his life to that, hard ground before the major revival came in Latin America. And he was teaching out of Ephesians. And he was teaching about the church. And I put my hand up and asked Martin Inchley a question, a good guy. And I guess I was stirred up about God's love for the church. And I said, Martin, can I ask you, doesn't God just sometimes cry and weep over the state of the church? Isn't the church like that character in that Dickens novel? I probably thought I was being a bit clever. Miss Havisham in her dirty, dusty bridal gown. Isn't it a little bit like that? And he started to, to more teach than, more preach than teach when tears started to flow down his uh, face. And he said, Clive, I want to try and help you to understand something that will be very important for you in your ministry. He said, Jesus looks at his bride that he's preparing The bridegroom looks at his bride and he looks at his church with love. God the Father looks down uh, from heaven at his church with love. He looks at every man, every woman, every young person, every child. And he sees, yes, all the imperfections, but he doesn't see his church the way you see Miss Havisham. He is preparing a beautiful bride and this side of the end of sin and this side of the end of Satan and this side of the end of this era, the church will be imperfect, but God loves his church. Amen? I went out of that lecture that day with tears rolling down my face and I have given myself to trying to love the church ever since. And I'm still going to try and give myself to loving the church. But there's problems and barriers, you see. Some people don't want to know anything about church. Christian atheists, for instance, don't want to know anything about church. Like that pastor, and sometimes they can maybe identify. He didn't even want to go to church. Maybe you don't want to go to church. You see, there are problems and barriers, personal issues, often discouragement, disillusionment, past hurts, current hurts, fears. Or just because of consumerism, Oh, it's not the way I like it. I prefer more spirit-led worship. Or I prefer more of the organ being used than contemporary style. Or I prefer less intellectual teaching. Or I prefer much deeper teaching. 
Consumerism has gripped us more than we realise. But one of the barriers is this, that some people make it all or only about the church. All or only about the church. Traditionalism. I will always go to a Baptist church, or always go to an Anglican church, or always go to a Methodist church, because that's my tradition. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you become so entrenched in those type of things, the danger is you go on a Sunday, you leave the same, and you do it out of a tradition. And it can sometimes go hand in hand with another ism, nominalism, where we are in name only a disciple, and we go because we've always gone, but we don't continue to follow Christ and let him transform our lives. And then a very, a very, very obvious one, secularism, another ism. The church is irrelevant to a lot of people in the world. And yet, if you lifted this church and all the other churches out of Plymouth, social services could not cope. The community of this city of a quarter of a million would collapse because of the significant work that the church does in being salt and light. Amen? Prime ministers have acknowledged this for the whole of the UK. So for some people, it's all and only about the church, and secularism is is going to be the death of the church for some people. And for some people, there's an authority that does go right back to Peter, that first pope, that says there's only one true church. Now, I'm speaking to you as someone who's not that uh, long ago had lunch with the Anglican Bishop of Plymouth, and not trying to name drop, and had an hour and a half coffee and a great conversation with the Catholic Bishop of Plymouth. And that lovely Catholic bishop would accept me, according to the Catholic teaching of Vatican II, as separated brethren, which is a big step forward from, in, in, from Vatican II that says, well, other Christians that are not Catholics, all right, they are brothers, but they're separated, they're not in the true church. Whereas Protestants, going right back to Martin Luther, a little bit of church history for you, they protested against what they believed was some of the drift in that church and said, no, we need a renewed church, a reformed church. And amen to that, and I stand in that tradition happily. But it's not all or only about the church, whichever church, and it's not all or only about Jesus and love. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But there are some people who say, oh, it's it's all about Jesus, it's all about love. It's never about discipline. Because Jesus just wouldn't, would he? It's Jesus who taught us in Matthew 18 about church discipline. It's Jesus who named his church and said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. It's about the rule and reign of Christ in someone's life. And if Christ isn't ruling and reigning, then those who are in the church have the important responsibility in love to act in love. Because Jesus' love is robust love. It's a love that looks at a rich young ruler. It's a love that spots the barrier in his life, wealth. And it's a love that lets him walk away. Because he wasn't willing to come to Christ on Christ's terms. And then there's those who say, I believe in the church, but just not like that. Just not like that. I believe in the church, but not that way. And you know, I've got to be honest with you. I do love this church. And please don't think I'll stop caring on this church, for this church on September 24th when I get in a a removal van. Well, I won't get in the removal van, the furniture will. Please don't think I'll stop caring for this church. Or you. Because I still care about Andover. And I still care about Christ Church. 
and I still care about the 2,000 Baptist churches in the UK and all the other churches too. And I wouldn't be much of a pastor if I didn't because God loves his church. But I've never been in a church that is perfect and I know this is such an axiomatic cliche. If I did join a church that was perfect, you tell me what would happen to it. I'd ruin it, wouldn't I? Because I'm not perfect. As many of you know, and my wife certainly does. But I do believe in a church that God loves. I do want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And as for those who say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, that is true in one sense, but it is utterly misleading in another. I suppose it's possible that you accept Christ and you remain in Christ and despite all the biblical injunctions to keep meeting and to be part of the church, that you're baptised into the church, you could live like a hermit in isolation and still claim to be and perhaps even be a Christian, but it's not God's best and it's not what he wants. We do need to go to church to be true Christians because that's what God wants for us. Craig Grishel in that book on Christian atheism in the chapter on believing in God but not in his church said this, God is not calling us to go to church, he's calling us to be his church, the hope of the world. So I pray that, Ross, you find the right place in pioneering ministry. You've told us that's your heart and your passion to see those people on the fringe that are often beyond the church. You've been in a church that's trying to do that, but you want to do it in an even different way. I pray, amen, that you'll do that. But as soon as they start responding to the love of Jesus Christ and the message that you bring and the love that you'll undoubtedly give them, guess what? A church is going to form. Because where a two or three gather in his name, there you've got church. It's inescapable, folks. God's not calling us to go to church. He's calling us to be the church, says Grishel, because the church is the hope of the world. And I move to my final point. And it's this. There is so much hope. There is, can you just say that? There is so much hope. Say it with me. There is so much hope. Say it again. There is so much hope because of, say it with me, because of, again, because of, and you know the next word, Jesus. Andy Stanley, pastor of a great church, great author, said Jesus is the hope of the world and the local church is the vehicle of expressing that hope to the world. Jesus is the one who's the hope of the world. The local church is the vehicle of expressing that hope to the world. So you know what we should be like? If we're going to have hope for this world and hope for the church, as long as we make sure Jesus is at the centre of everything we do and the way we are, our churches will be like a colony of heaven on earth. Does that sound good? A colony of heaven on earth. A taste of heaven. True community. True community. Community of worship, a community of prayer, a community where we encounter God's presence and a community where God's will is at the forefront of our mind. Not what can I get, but what can I give? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because God doesn't have a plan B. God's only got a plan A. And plan A is the church. He's got no plan B. He wants lots of colonies of heaven all over this planet before his son comes back as bridegroom to claim his bride. He wants us to live in a place to grow in grace. Do me a favour, just have a look at the people around you, will you? Have a look at the people around you. 
Did you find that you're looking at the ones that you really love and you like and you're smiling at them? Did you avoid looking at the ones that you know just irk you and cause you a bit of a problem and maybe wind you up a bit? Did you find you did that instinctively? Of course you did, because guess what? You're human. But a church is a place to grow in grace. There's no point leaving to avoid the need to grow in grace. There's no point doing that. You see, God often wants to use those people that we didn't look at and smile sweetly at to be agents of transformation for us. Now, a word to husbands and wives here. Whatever you do, don't look at each other in the wrong way at this moment. But I will talk about my relationship with Marilyn, who I love passionately and I've been married to for approaching 41 years. That is a miracle. I would love to tell you that it's been sweetness and light. We've never had a crossword. It's never been difficult. Okay? But what she would say and what I would say is it's been interesting at times, but that's deepened the love. And at times maybe we've been like bits of sandpaper. Now, the greatest carpenter who ever lived was Jesus of Nazareth, and he didn't have sandpaper as we know it, but he knew what it would be to smooth off a piece of wood. And what you're doing with a piece of sandpaper is you're taking off the roughness and the coarseness and the sharp edges and the the, uh, splinters and that type of thing, yeah? Well, that happens in any human relationship, in a marriage particularly. That over the years, hopefully, it gets easier because you've rubbed more of the rough edges off each other. Amen? This is too uncomfortable. I'm changing the metaphor. (laughs) I literally saw some husbands and wives kind of do that. You know? Not really. The fact is, in church, you get a wonderful chance to grow in grace by having to live out the truth in this word. Like if your brother sins against you, go and speak to them one-on-one. Elsewhere, speak the truth in love. Elsewhere, love deeply but admonish each other. And whatever else the church is, it's a discipleship training centre. I don't know how many of you can say it. I don't know if you'll even retain this as a vision statement. But the vision statement of this church, you can see it on the little vision cards that are still out there in the foyer, is this. We want to follow Jesus in all of life, colon, growing in love for God and others. Following Jesus in all of life, on our front lines, not just on the Sunday morning. Growing in love for God and others. That's whole life discipleship. It's being discipled in the church so you can live for Jesus on your front line and be salt and light there and make a huge difference there. Because this is my final point. The church is God's missional plan to reach a lost world. The church is God's missional plan to reach a lost world. If you take the Great Commission where Jesus, resurrected from the dead, appears on a mountain in Galilee to the disciples, and he appears to them and he gives them this great commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've taught you. In other words, go and make disciples, baptize them into me, of course, and into my Father, and by the Spirit who'll come and fill them, but into the church, and then teach that church everything that I've taught you. And remember the great commandment as well as the great commission. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. I just want to say this in response. You and I, we can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. 
We can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. We don't dumb stuff down. We don't water stuff down. We don't remove the areas of difficulty and pain and disagreement. We hold on to, particularly as elders, to a pure and right understanding of this love letter from heaven which reveals Jesus and his way and his means and his teaching so that his rule and reign is what our life and our family and our church is all about. And it might get sticky from time to time, but we can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. Will you stand with me as our musician and singer comes back? Time's gone. I'm sorry that was uh, long this morning, in one sense, but take heart. You won't have to put up with it for long. And I promise the elders I'll do my best to finish well. And that means me teaching this as passionately and as clearly as I can. It always will. So pray for those poor churches in Yorkshire that are used to 45-minute services. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for that beautiful picture from Genesis to Revelation of the bridegroom and the bride, of a man and woman coming together in marriage. And we thank you and we rejoice with our brother and friend Ross today at his and Alice's engagement. Help us to understand this profound mystery, Jesus, that you are coming back to claim your church as your bride, that you, Jesus, are coming back. And at this moment in time, you are washing your church around the world with a word. You are drawing people into your church who are being baptized through faith in Jesus Christ. You are baptizing them into the church and with and in your spirit who is filling their lives. And Father, we want to ask you today, would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you help us to be part of the solution, not part of the problem? Would you help us not to create a Miss Havisham, but a glorious, radiant bride of Christ for your Son, Jesus, to come and claim as his own? We ask this now, Father, in his name. We ask it for his glory alone. And all the people of God said, Amen.